This is our third study in Ephesians. We've, um, with the help of our visiting speakers, uh, looked at chapter 1 and we move into uh, chapter 2. And we've given this uh, heading, which is um, in the most of the NIV Bibles, Alive in Christ. In his book on Ephesians, Warren Wearsby, it's a book that is called Be Rich. If you ever want a good, easy-to-read commentary on the parts of the Bible, uh, get hold of his books, Warren Wearsby. Um, he heads this chapter, Get Out of the Graveyard. I think that's really good, isn't it? That's much more descriptive, really. And as we read through, we can see, really, where that comes from. These verses are an account for the Christian, the believer, of a journey from death to life. If we go back to the beginning of the the letter, you notice that Paul addresses it to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. The authorised version, which as you know I love, says the saints which are at Ephesus. So you see, this is addressed to those of us who know the Lord Jesus to be their Lord and Saviour. And it's a, um, a rehearsal, if you like, of what has happened to them, of what has happened to us. At the conclusion of chapter 1, we read about Jesus... God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's speaking of our Saviour, being the very centre, the very reason, the very everything that we are and that we have. And that we as a church are his. We belong to him. And we answer to him. Then Paul says, as for you, as for me. And he rehearses where we were and where we are. So what does he say first of all about ascending? He says, well, first of all, we were dead. Where do we find the dead? In a graveyard. In a cemetery. I, I, I don't know about you, but I like graveyards. They're fascinating places, aren't they? And uh, on um, a Friday, we had some friends to come to visit, and um, we showed them some of the wonders of Langport. I'm not sure why you're laughing. But we, but we uh, the, the church on the hill, you know, the All Saints Church, was open. So we went in and had a wander around. And it's a lovely space, and... A, As you know, it's not used very often and it's quite a tranquil space. But in another way, it's quite a sad space. Because as you walk around, you will notice that really all it is today, aside from a nice, quiet place to visit, look around, is actually a vast memorial to all kinds of people who lived through the ages in Langport, were buried and had sufficient money to have a memorial erected to them in this grand church. But as a a church, 
It isn't a church in the sense that God envisages a church, a church of people, a lively place, a place where God's work is done. It's, it's a lovely old building. And that's great, and I'm so glad it's preserved because it has lots of beauty about it. But I did, I did reflect as we walked around and saw the memorials to the great and the good, and perhaps, as far as we know, the not-so-good. Uh, but there they were. So we were really in a kind of a cemetery, a place of the dead. And you see, the thing about being dead, I'm sorry if it comes near, if anybody's had a recent bereavement, I'm sorry if I sound insensitive, but this is our subject this morning, you see. This is what Paul was trying to tell them. The thing about being dead is that you can't do anything about it. If you're going to be resurrected, well, somebody else might be able to do it for you. But you can't do it. You're helpless. There's nothing you can do. Do you remember in Romans uh, chapter 6 and verse 23, we have those, uh, that verse, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I never quote that verse just in part, because it would be dire, wouldn't it? It would be just so hopeless to say to somebody, do you know, the wages of sin is death, full stop. How tragic that would be. How sad. But the gift of God is eternal life. And so Paul was saying, these people were once, you were there. But now, you're here. Being uh, dead in our transgressions and our sins, we have no interest or concern for the things of God. We're not able to please God. We live lives that copy the way of the world around us. Just really interested in pursuing our own means and ends. It's interesting here that the devil, Satan, he gets a mention in verse 2 as the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, those who are dead in their transgressions and their sins. You see, we were sinners pursuing our own way, Satan's way rather than God's way. It's not really very fashionable, is it, to talk about Satan or the devil. In fact, truthfully, if you did a kind of poll amongst people, especially people who benefit from some uh, education, um, which of course is a really good thing to, to have, as Gaynor's explained, there are children throughout the world who have no hope of the kind of education we benefit from. But sadly, part of that education system, it seems to me, is to describe things as myths these days, things that we accept as being true, because it's part of our faith, it's part of who we are if we belong to God. But as a consequence of that, some of the things that we um, believe, some of the things that mean something to us, are to other people myths. And it seems to me, a uh, little aside here, uh, take me to task about it afterwards if you like, but it seems to me our education system is very keen to distinguish between what is considered to be uh, a myth and not. And you have all these kind of learned characters uh, who uh, speak about things that are myths. But... Satan is a very real person. But we have to be careful. We cannot say, the devil made me. 
He is not omnipotent. God is. That means he's all powerful. He's not. He is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere. God can. But the devil can't be. The devil rules over an order in this world. The order that is wicked, that is anti-God. That causes undoubtedly a great deal of the grief and suffering in this world. But we, each of us, have a nature, a sinful nature to deal with. Do you remember Cain and Abel? What did God say to Cain? He said, the devil is waiting at your door. Don't let him in. Sadly, Cain did. So Paul, when he's describing uh, us without Christ and these uh, Ephesians where they were, that's where they, they were. They, they were living a life that let these uh, things in. And as a consequence of that, they were without hope. They were destined for wrath, for God's wrath. Those of us who um, looked at uh, Psalm 1 during this week might see a parallel with um, verse 5 of that psalm. Where it says, therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now that's the King James Version, okay, because I like that. And I think it works better with many of the Psalms. They're not destined uh, for the eternal life of John 3.16, rather the, the condemnation of John 3 verse 18. It says, where it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Without Christ, our future is one of eternal separation from God. We sometimes don't say these things, but they're here in the passage this morning. It's important to grasp this, isn't it? This is why we have this graphic language from Paul uh, to describe our state before coming to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. Dare I use some old-fashioned words about being saved, born again, converted? They're Bible words. They're words that Jesus used. And I wouldn't apologise for using the language of Scripture. But I wonder, as we've read this, do we think that that's really just a description of first century converts living in Roman times? Because after all, those Romans were a rum lot. And uh, they kind of had a monopoly on real wickedness, uh, cruelty and depravity. So we might think, well, that wasn't me, you know, because, you know, I've been well brought up. I was brought up to know right from wrong, perhaps even in a home with a Christian influence. We could say, well, I'm not an Ephesian or a Roman or a Colossian or a Thessalonian or a Corinthian. I'll stop there. I know there are more. Well, that's true. But regardless of that, we're either sinners or we're sinners saved by grace. Whatever our circumstances, our age and way of life, without Christ we were dead. 
Again, going back to Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. You see, that is our natural bent. That is where we are by nature, by virtue of who we are and our sinful nature. But when Christ comes into our lives, when the Lord becomes our saviour, then things change. And the purpose of this really is for us to appreciate where we were and where we are. I sometimes miss in our preaching these days, more old-fashioned words, the gospel, the good news. Perhaps we feel it's a rather dated approach. But this message hasn't changed. The message of the Romans six twenty-three that we read earlier, that the consequence of our way of life is our sin without Christ is death, spiritual and eternal. But when we realize that if we repent of our sin and accept Jesus as Lord and Saviour, that abundant life is ours. The life that God has chosen for us with a certainty of the promise of eternity with him. So, you know, each of us has to look at ourselves because the Lord and you know where you are today. Later on in this letter, Paul is going to instruct the Ephesian Christians as to how they should live and behave towards each other and uh, to non-Christians. He's going to make it clear that they're in a fight and must arm themselves accordingly. It'll be radical. It'll be contrary to their culture. And surely in this day and age, it's no different to us. To live as a Christian is to live radically. It's to live contrary to the culture of our age. I'm not going to say any more because I'll be pinching from... um, Uh, preachers in the future but you see I believe that's why in the first three chapters of this letter Paul speaks so much of our relationship with God and his son Jesus when we have a real understanding and appreciation of what God has done for us well that should inspire us and motivate us in our service and witness in which in the world in which we live. We began in the graveyard. And that reminds me about that um, story in the scriptures. I think in uh, the gospels there are three accounts of resurrections. Uh, you remember when you know, the Lord uh, raised the um, little girl, Jairus' daughter, the widow's son and Lazarus. But I like that story of the, uh, the, uh, the demon-possessed man, or the Gadarene demoniac, if you want to. Uh, it's a lovely description. It rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Because, you see, that's where he was found, in the graveyard. Clothes torn, out of his mind, bent really on destruction, on harming himself. And the Lord came. And changed his life. And as we move on through this um, passage, 
Thankfully, Paul doesn't stop writing at the end of verse 3. Verse 4 begins with a little word. But. Praise the Lord for the buts and ands of scriptures. Because without them, where would we be? Because here you see we have a sort of bad news, good news situation. Bad news, you're dead. Destined for eternal separation from God because of your sinful nature. And there's nothing you can do about it. Good news, God hasn't stopped loving you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you. And by putting your faith in him, you can live again. Resurrection. A new and fulfilling life with heaven as our destiny. So some things to note then as we move through verse 4 and so on. What do we see? Well, we see that God's great love for us. What can we say of that love? The scriptures are full of God's love. It's unfailing. It's unlimited. It's undeserved. And sadly, often it's unrequited. God's mercy, it's rich, it's abundant. And the bit I like, it has no limits. This tells us something of the character of God. John tells us God is love. It is his very nature. And if you were to look in uh, John's letter, John's first letter, 1 John, uh, chapters 3 and 4, it's a wonderful study of God's love. In 4 verse 8 it says, Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in verse 9 it says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son, into the world, that we might live through him. And it just comes to my mind now, as uh, I say that, that there's, um, at the beginning of uh, chapter 3, I think it is, um, there's a verse that we used to sing. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. It's wonderful, isn't it, that the scriptures are consistent. What Paul writes to the Ephesians, John writes. They weren't in cahoots as such. Well, I'm sure they were, but it's what the Spirit placed in their hearts and minds to write for us. The love of God, well, that's a great, vast subject, isn't it? But the wonder for us is that we are not only the objects of his love, We're the consequences of his love. That God is merciful is evident. Otherwise, he would have left us to suffer the consequences of our sinful lives. So we've been brought back to life in verse 5. We haven't been left in the graveyard, but in the heavenly realms with Jesus. This building is... A nice building, a pleasant building, um, well cared for, quite recently decorated, the sun's shining in, it's a lovely bright space this morning, isn't it? But it's not heaven. And yet this morning, 
We are, as believers, in a heavenly place. Spiritually speaking, we're united with Jesus. And therefore, we're where he is. See, this verse speaks to me of a present in Christ and a future with Christ. Isn't that great? Doesn't that kind of make your heart race a little to think of that? Again, let's go back to my friend, because I wanted to say it again. The Gadarean demoniac. What happened after he encountered Jesus and the legion was driven out of him? What does it say? It says they found him clothed and in his right mind. Isn't that tremendous? Who did that for him? His friends? No, he didn't have any. His neighbours? No. The man who looked after the pigs? Certainly not. Jesus did that for him. That's who did it for him. And Lazarus. We read in, in John, of Jesus stands outside of the tomb and weeps. Then he calls him forth, doesn't he? With his voice, Lazarus is raised from the dead. And what do we read in a later chapter? Jesus comes to Bethany, to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And where's Lazarus? He's reclining at the table with Jesus. And that's us this morning. That's the picture that Paul is trying to paint. That although we find ourselves sat, yes, in a lovely building, but there are some people today in this world, some Christians, they're in a refugee camp. They're in a mud hut in Africa somewhere. They're in a difficult place. They're in a hard place. I wonder if I went to them and said, do you know you're seated with Christ in heavenly places today? It would be hard to say, wouldn't it? But it would be true. Because we can forget the circumstances around and know that we are resting in him. We're in him. And so Paul, you see, he's painted really a tremendous picture here of going from the graveyard to the palace, to heaven itself. And that is what God, through Jesus Christ, has done for us, for those who know and love him. Now, did you notice in this passage, there is a phrase that is uh, repeated. And if I'd have stopped now, you would have said, oh, he didn't say anything about grace this morning. It is by grace you have been saved. Verse 4 and verse 8. This tells us of the fact, as I said at the beginning, there in the graveyard there's nothing we can do. Everything that has happened to us is because of the grace of God. Because of his desire to be good and loving and merciful towards us. We can't come to him and say, well, actually, you know, I've been quite a good person because undoubtedly you have. As I look at you, I don't doubt it for a moment. I can't stand here and tell you how good a person I am because I know my own heart. And I know the times that I fail. 
And at times when I get it dreadfully wrong and nobody else but the Lord and I know. But, that, but that's not what it's about this morning. It's not about me. It's about God's grace towards me and towards you. We have done nothing to deserve or earn this wonderful blessing of finding ourselves moved from a grave to heaven itself. But that's where we are. We've been brought from death to life because of God's love and mercy. We have a relationship with his son Jesus such that we're seated with him him, in heavenly realms because God chose to save us, to give us life and to put us there. Not because we deserved it or merited it or earned it or learnt the, all the necessary um, words and phrases. Because we can learn the language, can't we? Uh, but it's about our hearts, isn't it? Where our hearts are, not the language we've learned. Now what we're going to do now at this point in the service is with that in mind, I, I do want to emphasise that, that really with what we have rehearsed together this morning, the blessings of our God through the grace he has demonstrated towards us, through his love and his mercy and the, the giving of his son, we're going to turn to a short time of worship before we uh, share communion together. You see, sometimes we come on a Sunday morning and we sing with great gusto and we sing from the heart, no doubt. Very often I find that the songs that somebody has chose, well, you know, I, I don't sing very well, but the words themselves and the sentiments expressed, they speak to me. But this morning I thought we'd do it the other way around. And what my desire and prayer was before we came this morning, that what we've shared so far this morning has spoken to you and has spoken to me so that the worship we bring now will be really real and come from our hearts. Verse 10 tells us, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Saved by grace, most certainly, but also saved to serve. God has a purpose. Through Jesus, he has given us new life, but that new life is in order that we might serve him in the church and in the wider world. As we go into uh, this coming week, I'd like that to be my sort of key thought. I can't speak for you, but that um, God has prepared something in advance for me to do. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 13, um, and I love that chapter in Hebrews, um, puts it this way. Through Jesus, therefore, let us... Continually, And words, words matter, don't they? Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that openly bless his name. And do not forget to do good 
and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Wouldn't it be wonderful if for all of us, the keynote, as it were, as we go into the week, is to try and, is to do that. To discover what good work God has for us to do. For our conversation to be such that it's a praise to God and a witness to others.